Right, uh, good evening everybody. Uh, welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy public lecture. Um, I want to say a few words about the kind of situation confronting us that Tariq Ramadan has been struggling with. The situation as concerns Europe, the West and Islam. Sometimes Islam appears as a kind of spectre haunting Europe. Sometimes Europe or the West appears as a spectre haunting Islam. Neither just a visitor, but some kind of visitation. It occupies us, sometimes obsesses us. There are two uh, standard models for this kind of obsession. On the one hand, we seem to be projecting outside of ourselves some feature of ourselves that we feel anxious or uncomfortable about. There the other is somewhere in ourselves. On the other hand, perhaps we incorporate something inside ourselves as something to be excluded. It's in ourselves as something other. So on the one hand you have the other who is ourselves, in ourselves, projected outside, some kind of fantasy object. And on the other hand it's held protectively within ourselves as something to be excluded. It seems to me that what's needed in both cases is something of a reorientation for Europe and for Islam. With respect to Europe, this is going to be indissociable from what one might call ethics. Ethics insofar as it has to do with the ethos, which etymologically is the residence, the home, the being at home, how one inhabits the place of dwelling. It concerns the manner in which we relate to ourselves and to others, the ethos of the home is a kind of tautology and it's expressed most radically in the welcome offered to the other. In Europe, and I'm speaking this time only of Europe, there are two traditions or heritages of an understanding of welcome to the newcomer, whether they're born or arrive, in any case the arrival every other. We say on the one hand, you are welcome. And when we say that, according to one tradition in Europe, we mean you can join in all of this. You are not excluded from any of this. You are welcome here. And in another tradition within Europe, within the European heritage, we say you are welcome. And what we mean is, you don't have to join in any of this. You are not required to participate in any of this. You are welcome here. These are two traditions of hospitality, always entangled with each other, vying for each other, and incessantly, in fact, welcoming each other with their own welcomes. Well, I'm about to welcome someone. 
Tariq Ramadan has an MA in philosophy and French literature and a PhD in Arabic and Islamic studies, both from the University of Geneva. And he's now professor of contemporary Islamic studies in the Oriental Institute at the University of Oxford. I was quite surprised to see the Oriental Institute there. It means that surreptitiously Tariq Ramadan is becoming an Orientalist. <laughs> the centre of his thought concerns contemporary issues around Muslims in the West and the conditions of mutual respect, an issue especially to the fore in his newest book, The Quest for Meaning, which is available for sale outside. And if you do buy it and would like the author to sign it, you buy it outside and then come back in here and we'll wait around for a bit and you can get his signature on your own copy. So conditions of mutual respect, and if we're to make any headway in the standoff of mutual incomprehension which seems to stand before us so often, we're going to need thinkers like Tariq Ramadan. So in the only language I currently understand, Tariq Ramadan, welcome. and this uh, uh, invitation uh, here to speak uh, uh, the, the European uh, organization dealing with philosophy and I think that this is quite interesting for me to be here because in fact uh, what I will try to do to this evening is not to speak really about Islamic issues and uh, uh, everything which has to do with this uh, 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 understanding Islam, Western Islam, Islamic contemporary, contemporary Islamic issues. Uh, let me say something about uh, where I'm coming from and why I wrote that book and, and what I am trying to do because in fact there is a route here to be understood if you want to get a sense of uh, what I'm trying to do uh, in that book. Uh, in fact for years I've been working uh, in different fields. There are books and a series of books on what is going on in Muslim majority countries, so you can find them. All together there are 27 books, but there is a series of five to six books on Muslim majority countries. Other books on Western Muslims, so from to be a European Muslim, Western Muslims and the future of Islam, to uh, 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 what I believe. And then there is a series of books on how do we have to deal with the um, uh, Islamic sciences and principles and objectives from within. So it's something which is crossing the board. The last book I wrote on that was Radical Reform, Islamic Ethics and Liberation, advocating something which has to do with what we need from within the Islamic tradition. Uh, but this book is not at all like this, and this is why I was uh, not surprised that it surprised people. Because it's a book on philosophy. In fact, the first PhD beyond the master which I, I, I got was on Western philosophy and a, a, a thesis on uh, Nietzsche's philosophy, the concept of suffering, and then I wrote on uh, uh, Nietzsche uh, as a historian of philosophy. And 
I wanted to go beyond this discussion about dialogue and saying, okay, let us now come from within a, a philosophical tradition, which is not only a Western tradition, but it's broader than that. Saying at the same time that uh, people coming from Eastern philosophies are dealing with you know, China or uh, Asian philosophies or spiritualities, the Hindus, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, and all these traditions are at the same time philosophies and spiritualities. And also Western philosophy and, and Islamic philosophy. And Islamic philosophy doesn't mean it's coming from the Middle East. The great uh, Islamic philosophers were in uh, Spain for uh, a long time and they produced so many interesting things. So what I wanted to do is to say, okay, let us come to uh, a better understanding of some of the common questions that we have. Having different roots, but maybe sometimes common questions and common answers, or different answers, but to get a sense of uh, this reality. Why? Because at the end of the day, I think that upstream for all what is said about our dialogue and, and pluralistic societies that we have to respect each other, I think that we need a mindset and a framework within which we are entering and we should enter when we are living in pluralistic societies, which is the case throughout Europe, that's true, but throughout the world. In any society today, you have to deal with pluralism. Just coming back from uh, the Middle East, and they have huge questions about our identity, what about these new immigrants that are coming, we cannot do whether, without them, but what is going our, what, what, what will be our future with them, when now we are a minority, like in petro-monarchies, for example, these are very deep questions. And it is the same now. And you just, I was just before coming here talking about what uh, Angela Merkel said about the fact that multiculturalism is a failure in Germany and, and it became you know, a story throughout the world. So uh, I think that uh, it's not getting to this discussion, but to get to the philosophical discussion. And I want you to do with you to this evening is just uh, a journey within some uh, or through some of the the topics and the concepts that are so important in our understanding. So let me start with three things that I wanted to say. And I know that uh, very often the people are qualifying me as a Muslim intellectual. So a Muslim intellectual is expected to speak about Islam and Islamic issues. If not, you are outside the box and it's bothering. What are you doing? What are you trying to do? Or what are you saying? Or what do you mean by saying this? So it's really this, for me, which is important, is an understanding of uh, a philosophical discussion and developing a philosophy of pluralism, which is the subtitle of the quest for meaning. So it's really talking to everyone of us from within her or his tradition, philosophical tradition, be she or he uh, uh, an atheist, an agnostic, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Jew, a Christian, or a Muslim, or whatever, is just to think about these questions that are so central in our society uh, today, in our world. And I started by uh, uh, a dedication to the semicolon. The book is for the semicolon. And so I was asked why. Because in fact, is this uh, sign that we have in our sentences that is helping us to deal with complexity. We have one sentence 
and many clauses and propositions. And you cannot just come with a very simplistic white, black and white, simple sentence, no. The semicolon is just telling us the sentences could be very complex as the world is complex. So it's reconciliation with the sense of complexity. And a sense of complexity has an impact on our mind, and I will come to this, which is for me the starting point of everything. If you don't get what I call the beginning, intellectual humility, say whatever you want about dialogue, there will be no dialogue if you start with arrogance. Arrogance is by definition opposed and contrary to anything which has to do with dialogue. Intellectual, intellectual humility is the starting point. So this was the starting point. The semicolon is just to say, okay, look, think about it, because we are dealing with complex issues and complex uh, uh, concepts, whatever we are trying to do. The second thing which is important is an attitude, a behavior, a, a, a mindset, which is the starting point of the book. Very often, when we look at the ocean, we look at the ocean through our window. Every one of us, wherever you are, whoever you are, from wherever you speak, you have a kind of a window, a framework through which you look at the world. And this is your viewpoint. So humility means that I know that there are other windows, that we are not looking at the same, uh, we can look at the same object, but not from the same window. So to start with this is a very important point. But in the book, what I'm trying to do is to look at the windows through the ocean, which is to reverse the whole uh, perspective, to say it might be that now we have to plunge into a concept and ask ourselves what every single window is saying about it, to get the sense that there is an object, there is something which can call objectivity, there is something that could be called truth, but whatever we say about truth, it's always through a specific window. But it has nothing to do with relativism, say everything is equal. No. It's just to acknowledge the fact that there are viewpoints, that it's helping you to understand that you have to be intellectually, intellectually humble, but to get a sense of what is said by the different traditions. And this is also helping you to get a sense that at the end of the day, whatever is your, your uh, take on truth, you belong to the truth and the truth doesn't belong to you. Whatever is your answer. And we can even question the question of truth. Is there a truth? You may say no. This was the answer of Nietzsche, saying, what are you talking about? You're telling me that I have to say the truth. I want to say lies. And that's fine with it. So this is, my truth is to lie. Think about it. Not bad to start as a philosophy, but it could be that uh, even if his truth is to acknowledge the fact that we can lie, there is still a truth in the fact that he lies. Okay? So this is the starting point of a very complex discussion. Uh, but my point was really to look at the windows through the ocean and to take 14 concepts that I'm trying to analyze, understand from the quest for meaning, the universal <coughs> education, men and women, toleration, respect, uh, emotions, spirituality, uh, uh, civilization, citizenship, sense of belonging, all these concepts uh, to try to get a sense of what is said by the different traditions. And once again, it's very broad. It's coming out of my readings, but also out of my experiences. Because I wanted, when I was young, to listen to people who are not from my tradition. I went to spend some time with the Dalai Lama, 
on the one side, that to listen to him, to listen to what he had to say, but also to Donald Donald Camara in Brazil saying the only way you are close to Jesus is when you are close to the poor, is the way of reading the Bible through the eyes of the poor. So I spent days and months with people like this to try to get a set. So it's experiences and readings, trying to build a better vision of these visions, these viewpoints. So this is the second point that I wanted to make. And, and then, once again, is really not, as it was said by someone who was reading, who say, say, oh, it's advocating relativism. It's exactly the opposite. Is not everything is relative. We have to take uh, uh, this to make decision. And now it's up to us to take this, uh, to make this decision and, and to try to understand what is our way without dismissing and not acknowledging the roots of the other. So this is uh, a, a main point here, which also is questioning our respective traditions. I'm coming from a respective tradition, yes, from an Islamic pers uh, tradition, but I think that the only way to be faithful to your tradition is to question your tradition and the way the people are dealing with their own tradition. Critical thinking is, is essential. And this is the question, and I'm mentioning it, and something which is also questioning our way of romanticizing people. We have just the new book of uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, which is released these days, and he's saying, I just want the people to understand that I'm not an angel, that my life, and I have dark sides, and that we have the only way to deal with humanity is to really deal with human beings. And human beings, every one of them have, uh, has a dark side, that we have to deal with it. And this is also something that we can find with Gandhi. The Mahatma Gandhi had a very deep discussion with someone who was saying, you are not the one which is needed for India. This non-violent business is not going to work, and the way you deal with the untouchable is problematic. Ahmed Ka was a lawyer. He was uh, chosen by Nehru just to, to write the constitution, the Indian constitution. And they had a discussion about Hinduism and the castes. Gandhi was saying, all the untouchables are in fact Harijan, gods, uh, 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 the children of God. And uh, America said, no, don't play with words. These people are untouchable, marginalized, discriminate, discrimin discri uh, uh, discriminated people. They are oppressed. And the only way to talk about them is to speak about oppressed people, not to speak about sons of God. Because you are romanticizing the whole thing. And you look at this, and at the end, Ahmed Ka decided that in Hinduism there is something which is problematic in itself, the castes. They say, because of this, you cannot get out of it. There is something which is intrinsically not equal in the status of human being. And you had someone saying, no, you can go beyond this. And the answer of uh, uh, Gandhi's answer was, I'm a Jew, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian, I'm a everything. But the answer of Ahmed Kawa say, no, you can't say this. You have to question your tradition. So it's not about being, you know, everything is equal. We can accept everything. We have to be critical. And this is what I'm trying to say in all these uh, 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 traditions. The third thing which is important here is that uh, if you look at uh, uh, what uh, Mirza Eliadi said. Mirza Eliadi is someone who's a historian of religions. And he was saying, wherever I went, studying from the very small tribes to the big civilizations, there is one thing that I, I, I found everywhere. The people are always in quest for meaning. And 
religions, this is his answer or his interpretation, are part of the intellectual structure of human beings. Saying it's part of us, that we are looking for an answer. So we are looking for an answer, and the answer is why. It's the answer to why. Why am I here now? To give a lecture, that's fine. But what is the meaning of my life? What is the meaning of my death? What is the meaning of being a human being? I say everywhere there is no tribe, there is no community, there is no individual not asking this question. It's part of us. It's in our structure. And he's connecting this to the religious answer or the spiritual answer. It's part of our being. It's part of our human conscience. And here you can say that it's looking for the truth or the answer, the truth of my being here. And some would say in uh, uh, analytical philosophy now, these are all questions coming from metaphysical questions, and the metaphysical questions are wrong questions, because metaphysical take is wrong per se. Don't go as far as that. But still, if you don't think that there is a truth, it's still something which has you are dealing with an answer. So to say there is no answer is an answer. It's an answer which is giving meaning or not to your life. At the end, for example, if you look at Heidegger or Sartre, they were saying, my life has no meaning. I have to give to my life its meaning. This is my business. I have to, but at the end, we need a meaning. We need to do something out of it. And this is why we have all the same questions. And what I'm saying, to get this answer is to get to find peace. In, in other words, we are all trying to get a question is a need. When you are in need, you are not at peace with yourself. You are in need of something. And then when you get the answer to your question, you will get some kind of peace. And when I was once in, uh, in France saying this to a philosopher, say, I don't like your idea of peace. In fact, I like to be troubled. I like my troubles. I say, that's fine. Be at peace with your troubles. That there is not a problem. <laughs> because at the end of the day, if you find that you can express, be creative, and by the way, all the poets and arts is all about being and accepting and facing our troubles. So you transform this into something which is art and creativity. And you get that peace in creating something out of your troubles. And this is your peace. This is exactly what Freud was saying about you know, this uh, uh, projection that you are making which this sublimation out of your uh, 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 troubles or traumas that you are trying to express out of us. Not a problem. At the end, we find always something which is common if we understand what we are trying to get. So having said that, this is all the framework or, so to speak, the, 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 the mindset <coughs> or the angle to which I try to, to deal with this uh, concept. So I, what I want to do, because uh, I just want to take a uh, still 20 minutes to give you the floor to, to ask questions, and I think that this is uh, 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 the best way to, to have interaction and to try to, to, to talk about some of these issues. There are five things, that five concepts that I want to tackle this evening quite quickly to give you a sense of what I'm trying to do. The first one is really about this quest for meaning, and sometime, something, something which is the starting point. Emmanuel Kant, the German philosopher, was very, you know, he, had, he wrote a lot, more than 1,000 books. He had time. He was like, <laughs> no, really. <laughs> no, in the way, if you look at the way, his way of life, he was really, really strict with himself. The only time he changed his uh, uh, daily uh, program was when he heard that there is the French uh, Revolution. 
this is the only day he changes, you know, very strict uh, schedule. Uh, and he came with three questions. What can I know? What can, uh, how can I behave? How should I behave? And what can I hope for? Three questions. In fact, trying to summarize the whole of philosophy, these are the three questions that are important. What can I know? Because this is the question why. Could I know why? Then with my answer to what I, can I know is how can I behave in my life? What is, and this is about morality and ethics, by the way. This is exactly it. This is ethics. Should I do this? Yes. How could I, be, I behave with other human beings? Saying at the end his maxim is treat the people as ends, not as means. Which is how can I be? How should I behave with people? And then what can I hope? Is there something after my death? And this is, is there something that I can get out of a good behavior? Because at the end, this was the discussion that we had with the Enlightenment, is Diderot saying, do whatever you do, the virtues at the end of the day, they will never have a good life. They are going to lose. Anyway, try to be good, you will lose. You are a loser. The only way is just try to get what you want. Interest is the center of everything. And, and I think that uh, this is a discussion which is quite important. So well, in this three questions, you will find that in all the philosophies and the spiritualities and the religions, you will find in one way or in another something which has to do with the three questions. So they are responses to the three questions. What should I know? When, for example, the majestic traditions are telling you you should rely on revelation, meaning you cannot get it all. Your knowledge is limited. And this is what Blaise Pascal was saying to Descartes. All your business to build the, 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 the pyramid of truth, this is arrogance. So you should stop by saying, there are limits to your reason, and if your reason thinks that there is no limits to your reason, you have an arrogant reason, and it's not reasonable. Okay, so this is the way he was building this discussion, the, the 17th century, about the, the rationalism in, in, uh, in, in the West, and this discussion in France, but also in Italy, but also in Germany, and, and in, in, in Britain as well. So I think that here what we get with the quest for meaning is uh, something which is common, is that we are all trying to get uh, this truth and the answers to our questions. And I, I use the, 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 the image, the metaphor of the mountain, saying that we, there is one top, one summit, and there are roots going there. And it's quite important to look at the mountain from the valley and say, okay, I'm just trying to follow my roots, but there are many roots. And uh, to acknowledge the fact that where, wherever you are on your own roots, you still have to respect the other roots. But the problem is that in our time, and very often, we have people coming and saying, because they are arriving the first, they say, yes, there are other roots, but our roots is the best. So it's not enough to acknowledge the fact that there are other roots, is what do you say about the other roots and how do you position yourself? And this is why there is no discussion about the quest for meaning if we don't discuss about power. It could be economic power, it could be symbolic power, it could be media power, but at the end of the day, your respect is mediated through all other dimensions. So when you sit down and say, let us talk and have a dialogue about our diversity interface dialogue, there is an absent reference here is about what is your situation, economically speaking, humanly speaking, in the whole discussion. Is it a discussion on an equal footing? Yes and no. 
And uh, I'm using here what Rousseau was saying, the first man who came and, and put four sticks and say, this is mine, uh, and created the private property, was a liar, and just he uh, misled all the people, all the humanity. So we are sometimes doing with uh, universality and, and truth exactly what people in his vision uh, and his image are doing with uh, private property. We arrived the first, so this is the truth, and we have it. And it comes also to all this discussion about the universals. We, come, we came the first, we put the stick and say, this is ours. So we had discussions in Muslim-majority countries, for example, or in India, or in Christianity, or in the West. You had people, once I was discussing about, with a philosopher, and he said once, and this is the second topic, which is about universals, he said, the Western universal values. I said, hold on, what do you mean? The Western universal values mean that the West has the universal. So there is a contradiction in terms. There are either Western or universal. But if you say Western universal value, you are just colonizing the universal. So this is the idea behind imperialism. And you may find that it's exactly the same sometimes within religion. You have Muslims speaking about Islamic universal values. And you have Christian or Jews getting the, se the sense that they have the universal. So how do you position yourself? And this is why I'm advocating here that there is only one way to get the universal values is to understand that they are shared universal values. It has to be shared. So acknowledging the fact that there are roots and acknowledging that at the end we look at the top in a way which is what we share, this is what we can uh, uh, define as universal. But here, it's important not to look at the mountain from the top and to colonize the universal by saying, yes, whatever the roots are, we are on the top and we speak from the top. And it's not only religious minds that are doing this. You can have very dogmatic, atheistic minds, very dogmatic. And people are saying, you know what, I doubt everything. And because I doubt everything, I'm open-minded and not you. I say, okay, you are as dogmatic as the people you are rejecting. Because in the name of your doubt, you are rejecting all the truths, and your doubt becomes your truth, which is judging all the others. So the point here is really what do we get out of this? And this is why in the book I'm, I'm saying something which for me, out of you know, 25 years of interfaith dialogue, intercultural dialogue, dealing with people, trying to understand what are our differences and what is common, there is something which I, I, I got, and I'm trying to explain this in the book, is that it's not only what we say which is important, it's not only that we listen, it's very good to listen, but it's the way we listen. It's the way we look at the other and the, the way we look at ourselves. And this is what I'm trying to translate with the first chapters, is to say, let us come to three conditions that at the end of the day are humanly important if you are serious about pluralism, when developing a philosophy of pluralism. The first one is what I said at the beginning, is intellectual humility. Intellectual humility is important. And the second, it's this humility as for oneself, which is a sense of consistency. Consistency is whatever are your values, be able to be critical with your own behavior and ask yourself, are you consistent with your values? So it's a sense of, you know, 
asking yourself between your values and your behavior this critical thinking. And it's important on the individual basis, but it's also important in a community or social basis. Why? Because in our discussions today, if you listen to what is said about the alliance of civilizations and all this dialogue, it's all fine. But very often you have people dealing with their values and judging the behavior of the other. And it's on both sides, or, 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 or more than that, all the civilizations, you look at you know, what is said now about our democratic values, human beings, and you look at the other side and say, okay, look the way they are behaving. And for example, you, you, you speak with you know, Hindu, Asian people, Muslims, and they will do exactly the same. You cannot compare the values on the one side and the behavior on the other side. And what would be the starting point for every one of us is to look at your values, to assess your values and the behavior, the gap or the inconsistencies that you can find between this and that. So I think that being critical, the critical mind, uh, it's a very important one, based on this intellectual humility. Having said that, there is a third concept which is important, which is the concept of respect. And the concept of respect, I know that the people, some people say, oh, what does it mean to respect? To respect is first to acknowledge that there are other roots, other truths, other values, and that whatever is the answer of the other, you might don't like it, you might refuse it, you might reject, but at least you have to respect you know, the effort of the root of the other, the fact that the other is as much as you trying to find his or her consistency, his or her answers. So this is something which has to do with intellectual humility, <coughs> consistency, and respect. This should be there before even speaking about pluralism, before speaking even about anything else. Is what? How do you listen? How do you? What do you try to get? And there is something which is more important. Respect means what? How can I show you that I respect you? When listening to you, I could be critical with myself, and being sure or assured that I can get something out of you, that you, ha you have something to give me, that I can take from you. It's not only I speak, you listen, which is sometimes you know, what we call dialogue, and once again, I'm always saying this is interactive monologue, <laughs> you know, with someone, someone else, but you talk and he doesn't listen. But the point is really this, to listen and to say, you have something to tell me. I, ha I have something to get out of you. This is respect, meaning that there is value in what you say and there is learning the process of listening to what you say. So humility, consistency, and respect are for me so important. Uh, and there is another concept which is important here, it's about education. And once again, you will see this, uh, and I'm trying to speak about all the new schools from Piaget to, to what we have today speaking about education. And it's also something which is important for all of us. You will find this in all the philosophies and all the spiritualities. You know, it started with Socrates, is you will never be a human being if you don't go through a process of education. To be a human being means you have to educate yourself, or you have to be educated in one way or in another. Education is not training. Education is transmitting knowledge and getting the behavior. It has to do with the behavior. And this is all the schools you will find this, that it's, this is universal reference that we find everywhere. So what he said about this is quite important. So once again, I'm trying to deal with this and to try to get a sense of, at the end, you can measure the values of a society when you can get what is taught to the kids, what is taught to the citizens, what is taught to, to within a family, for example. Tell me why you become, uh, or you can be 
uh, full of anger with your kids, I will know what you try to teach and in which way you educate. If it's all about losing money, you, will become, you, will, you are going to you know, lose your temper. Or what are the values that you are giving or transmitting through education? This is a very important discussion. And when, for example, I'm, I'm you know, as teaching in a university, or when I was young, I was teaching in secondary schools. This is a very important discussion. What our societies are teaching to the future citizens? to be committed to speak about contribution, to give, or only to speak about rights, to shape an understanding of the other, for example, is, is, is something which is important. And this is why, in the book, I'm advocating that we really need, in all our school systems, private or public, in the West or in the, the East, South, and North, we need to reconcile ourselves with four disciplines. And the first one is history. We are, we are losing a sense of history. That what was the past, you know, to keep this memory, memory as, you know, the, the way we translate our relationship with history. That we have to study this. And, you know, I was teaching for years French literature and I was teaching philosophy. When you have young, you know, students, they don't know about the past. They don't know about the figures of the past. They don't know about their own history. How could you be at peace with someone who is coming from abroad or perceived as an alien to your culture when you yourself, you don't know where you are coming from? It's simple. You don't know who you are. The one who is coming with this knowledge of who he is or who she is is going to uh, uh, frighten you. You are always scared of the people who know who they are or perceiving or you perceive them as knowing from where they come or who they are when you don't know who you are. So there is a sense here that we have reconcile ourselves with history and the teaching of history is quite weak crossing the board. The second one is about philosophy. So the first one is about <coughs> this connection to memory. The second one is really about uh, philosophy is asking the questions. Why? It, it's not to speak about how it works but why? Why are you doing what you are doing? Why for example in our societies we treat the people like this sometimes? Why are we doing this? Why are we getting that choice? Why today, for example, all the immigrants are criminalized the way they are? Why? why, what, are why what are we trying to, to get, to achieve? This is a very important question. So it has to do with philosophies in, in, in as what is your answer to what, who you are and what do you want to achieve with your life? It's something which has to do with uh, intellectual responsibility. So philosophy is important and not only to get very quick answer to be efficient, but deep question to be a human being. So philosophy, it's important. Religion, it's also important. To teach religion, it's important in pluralistic society. And I don't mean, I don't mean that it's catechism. It's just the knowledge of religion. Religious illiteracy, it's a problem. If you don't, you know, many people are telling me, you know what, I'm no longer a Christian. And I don't believe in God. I don't like all this business. You ask the second question about who they know, what they know about the religion, they don't know. So they think that they are free to choose, but free with, to be free and to be ignorant at the same time doesn't matter. Doesn't, doesn't match. It's not possible. There is no way of being free if you are ignorant. So you can decide that this is not religion, that you reject it, but at least have the knowledge of what you are accepting or not. And this is for yourself, but also for the people who are coming from Hinduism, Buddhism, and all these philosophies and spiritualities. 
and to stop romanticizing some of the philosophies we like because apparently it's good for us today. We are so scared of being, you know, of death and uh, that now we are very happy with something which is Buddhism. It's good. We are coming back. The good news with Buddhism is that we are coming back. <laughs> so if you sit with a Buddhist and say, this is the worst thing that I want is to come back. I want to liberate myself from coming back. <laughs> so we are not talking the same, the same, in the same way. Buddhism is all about that. Liberating yourself from the samsara is coming back. So I'm trying to get a sense here that we, that we have to stop this very idealized way of talking about spiritualities and to get a very deep sense. Because there is no, you know, it's, to be a Buddhist today with all the teaching is very demanding. Very demanding. And all the, the, the pictures that you have with the Dalai Lama, you know, he's the one who is waking up at 4 o'clock every morning, repeating the text by heart to liberate the self. But we like the image. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I think that it's not serious. We need the knowledge. We need knowledge. It's for, or at least to be able to, to dialogue and to understand that. I would say that here is something which is important. Uh, so religion, and there is something which is very important for me, which we are losing now, which is the fourth dimension of what we have to teach, is arts, creation, creativity. It's everything which has with creativity, it's important. Because it's not only about, you know, creating, you know, novels or writing, it's, it's deep. It has to do with taste, it has to do with beauty, it has to do with uh, curiosity. It has to do with creativity. It's, there is no art without getting in touch with how the people are dealing with their suffering. And this was the Nietzsche's question, by the way. Tell me what you do with your suffering, I will tell you who you are. Some are very quick to say, I'm suffering because I'm, I'm guilty. I say, this is it. This is the power of the people who are saying, you are guilty of something, so they are, they are putting you in the box, in a world which is all about you know, this uh, sense of guilt. I say, don't. Ask yourself what you are doing with your suffering. So suffering, beauty, all these dimensions and curiosity, it's so important. So when we speak about history, when we speak about philosophy, religion, and art, we are speaking about memory, we are speaking about meaning, we are speaking about answers, and we are speaking about curiosity. It's the way we deal with this curiosity, which is uh, so uh, important, and beauty, uh, which is also so important. And sometimes you have to let the people get that. One of the main problems that I have with some of the Muslims is just to say, stop speaking about rules. Remember that you have a saying, for example, in the Islamic tradition saying, God is beautiful and he likes beauty. Come back to this, because this is the meaning of things, and not only the rules. But in our, in our schools, to get to the London School of Economics, you should be better in mathematics and languages than in arts very often and it's to be performant and efficient in some specific disciplines. And I think that this is wrong. It's, it's not the way forward. If we want to come with this philosophy of pluralism, is how do we deal with the perception and the beauties that are celebrated in other traditions? So very quickly, uh, two things that I wanted to say. Uh, there is one chapter on men and women. Because really, I think that we have to come to a discussion here which is deeper than this very simplistic discussion about uh, in this civilization is like this and this civilization is like this and people coming from the past. You know, the, 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 there is something which is really the social and cultural construct 
about how do we build men and how do we build the image of women. And this is quite important here, that we have to deal with this. And anything which has to do with this discussion has to do with power, again. So I'm trying in this book not to avoid the discussion on power. Because when you are in a couple, when you are married, you can just speak about love. But every one of us knows that at the end of the day, there is a power struggle somewhere. Who is deciding? Who is saying what? That's it. This is, love is also about power sometimes. Be careful with the people who are telling you, I love you. There is power. <laughs> now you are laughing. Think about it. Think about it. But I don't mean that you have to avoid that, but just to acknowledge the fact that there is something here which is so important. And then, how do you deal with this? Because, you know, when we speak about the weak uh, uh, sex and gender, all this now, you know, with neurosciences is quite interesting. Some of the, the new discoveries, and I'm just dealing with this in the book as well, uh, are telling us things that are quite interesting. In fact, if you look at all the discoveries that we have now on neurosciences and the brain and how it works, in fact, the men are weaker than women. But, <laughs> I know you're happy with that, but I, I have to add, to add something to this. But women need more words per day to express themselves. So in fact, <laughs> this is uh, another truth at the top of the mountain. So, <laughs> so, by the way, think about this. Is that in fact, the men the, the, the average is less words per day, but more, much more emotional. So it's quite interesting that all these discoveries are showing that the, the men are more emotional, but less expressive. While women are stronger and more expressive. So, and sometimes we think that the more you talk, the more you are weak. Wrong. It might be that because you don't speak, it's just the way to protect yourself from your own weaknesses. And you will see that in every single tradition, and even the West is a tradition on this, you can find very interesting things that are said about that and how this is culturally and socially constructed also. And in the way we sometimes avoid, uh, avoid speaking about power, but this is part of the whole discussion. So uh, this is also something that uh, I'm trying to tackle here as one of the topics. And the last one, which will be also my conclusion, is about compassion and love. Schopenhauer was saying something which was uh, taken afterward by Nietzsche, and he liked this. He said, to live is to suffer. Willing it or not, and when you think about it, it's true. In fact, the story of our life is a sad story. It's going to end badly. <laughs> and you are laughing, that's fine. <laughs> as long as you are laughing, go ahead. But it's going to be sad. It's going to be sad for yourself. One day you will die. It's even going to be sad with your, if you, you know, just you are meeting someone, you fall in love. The very moment you fall in love, you can say that one day we are going to be separated in one way or in another. So if you say it's for life, that's, that's good. But life has an end. And here, this is what he's saying, is in fact, to live is to suffer. You are going to suffer. Acknowledge that. This is life. 
And all the philosophy and even art and creativity and all this is about how do we deal with this, with this reality that to live is to suffer. And then he adds, which is something which is coming from St. Augustinus, is to live is to love. Because without love, there is no real life. So it's love. And if you go through the syllogism of Aristotle, if to live is to suffer, is to, to, to live is to love, to love is to suffer, as I just told you. And this is a syllogism that you can find in all the traditions, is how you are going to deal with this. So you, you need to get a meaning of the way you love. So it's not enough, and by the way, in all the traditions and all the philosophies, it's not enough to say I love, is that which kind of meaning you give to that? It's not only the superficial expression of your heart, it's the deep understanding of your, the meaning of your life. And here, there is all this, this dimension that we get in the Buddhist tradition, which is about compassion. And as a Muslim, and when I was talking with Christian Donald Kamara on the ground, and people try serving the people, say, at the end of the day, it's all, love is all about serving. If you love, you serve. In one way or another, you serve. You know that you can have power. You have the power to serve, by the way. Which is true as well. In the way you love, in the way you serve the people. But it's to serve the people and to try to, to give the best of your being and your heart. This is the way you have to, to deal with this. But there is something which is in all traditions, and it's very important for us today. Especially in a, in a time where we are dealing with deep psychological problems and questions. And if you go through all the civilizations today, we are all dealing with very deep questions about ourselves. What you were saying about Europe is, what is our identity? You go to the Muslim-majority countries, what is our identity? You go to India, what is our identity? You go to the Middle East, who are we? And it's a psychological you know, tension that we have. And there is something which is quite important here is, at the end of the day, you need to go through the process, because when we speak about compassion, but when you speak about love, there is one starting point if you avoid talking about it, you're not going to get a solution. Is the first person, the first individual on which compassion should be uh, translated or offered is your own self. This is the Buddhist tradition, which is everywhere. Be compassionate with yourself. Know how to love yourself. And it's the best way to be open to the other. So compassionate and to deal with your own suffering suffering and the, the, the way you deal with your, the, the own questions that you have. And at the end, this is it. This is to go beyond the sense of guilt and to be able to deal with love towards your own self, to start with the self and to be open, to open the doors. And uh, it's in everything. It's about your feelings. It's about your mindset. As I said, consistency. But it's also with the way you deal with the other, the way you can be open to the other or be open to this dialogue, this developing a philosophy of pluralism starts with your own self. It's paradoxical, but it starts with this. And it's also intellectual. You know, after the Pope said what he said about, you know, the roots of Europe, my answer to his, to his statements was not to say it's completely wrong, and uh, of course, I think it's wrong. What he said was wrong, because it's wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, when you say, for example, when you say objectively, when you say the roots of Europe are Greek and Christian, you know anyone who has studied the history of thought in Europe said that this is uh, knows that this is not this is not true that this is a reduction of the past because he has some challenges in the present. But I can understand that it's not to be wrong 
for the sake of being wrong. You can understand the psychology behind this, what he's trying to say to the European people. But this is not the point. The point was for me to say, you know, at the end of the day, it might be that Europe doesn't need a dialogue with the other, but first a dialogue with itself from within. Who are we and the way we have to deal? And this is where you get the sense of all these dimensions that are related to this understanding of love, this understanding of compassion, this understanding, this quest that we are trying to get. So this is why I try to do in the book. So don't expect in this book something which has to do, oh, it's about Islam. It's not. It's really, ab it's really about developing the philosophy of pluralism. It's really about the quest of meaning and then to come to plunge into the concepts and to try to understand what is said by the different traditions and just at the end, if you get to understand that it's complex, that we need this you know, uh, humility, that we need to understand the different roots, that it doesn't mean that we have to relativize our own take, but to understand that there are other things. So with this mindset, I would say that this is the starting point of a journey. In fact, the book is like a journey into all these concepts to open uh, our minds to listening better and to uh, communicate in a better way with all these uh, 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 dimensions that I was trying to, to highlight this evening. Thank you. some kind of rational enlightenment, I, I thought it worth mentioning that in one of uh, Kant's thousands of books, uh, one called The Anthropology, he, he listed, as he often did, these three uh, questions that Tarek had mentioned, the what can I know, what should I do, what can I hope, and in The Anthropology he added, in, in just for the first time and the last time, a fourth question, what is man? And he immediately said, this is actually the first and only question, that is to say that all the other three are contained inside it. And so that question, what is man, is what does it mean to be a human being? And I think one of the fundamental points of Tariq's claims in, in his work is, as he described it tonight, was to say, fundamentally, what it is to be a human being is to be open to the question of what it means to be a human being, and that that, that question doesn't have a final full-stop answer. It's, as it were, being, being in the business of asking the question is something which has to be a kind of constant for you as a human being. There's no arrival at the end. Uh, St. Augustine, who you quoted, also said it's the journey is worth more than the discovery. Now, uh, one way of not respecting a visiting lecture is to offer a lecture in return. <laughs> and uh, in the um, spirit of avoiding interacting monologue, uh, we, have, we have a chance for questions and discussion now, but if you could avoid giving a lecture in return, that would be really great. We do have a, a microphone which will go around, so if you, uh, two in fact, so if, uh, if you put your hand up to, to, uh, if you'd like to um, make a contribution, please do, but please try not to uh, keep it going too long. Okay, thanks. Hi. Hi. Hi, sir. I'm Ivaiwo, and um, you were very expressive on the four disciplines that should be taught uh, on education. Um, I'm also interested in uh, 
not only what should be told, but I'm wondering, have you thought about how this should be taught and who will teach them? And, uh, of course, you're a philosopher and might not necessarily be what you're doing, but just if you have any, any ideas of this, because maybe it might require talent or specific uh, skills that the teachers need, and maybe some don't necessarily have, have these skills. Thank you. Thank you. No, I, I think it's a, it's a very good question. How do we have to, to teach and, and uh, not only what? Uh, I'm trying in the, the, the book, in the chapter, to come with you know, all this uh, new uh, 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 methodologies that we have in this interaction with this, the, 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 the student and the pupils. Uh, I really think that uh, uh, um, I don't want, and in my mind, it's not only to question the, the structures and the structural way you know, that we have, but really to do three things. First to acknowledge the fact that today the teachers are not only, you know, uh, training. Uh, there is a, a distinction in, in, in my two other languages, in Arabic and in, in, in French, that are not quite clear, uh, are not exactly the same in, in English. In French, there is a distinction between education and instruction. Uh, in English, we say education and training not exactly the same. Instruction is really to transmit knowledge and educating is knowledge and behavior. So we say education is for the, the family and instruction is for the schools. And I would say that this categorization it doesn't work. That in schools we need people being able to deal with education in one way. It has to do with behavior because we are also training in fact uh, future citizens. So I would say that it's really to think about uh, the, the, you know, the priorities that we are putting in our uh, curriculum. And I would say I, I'm challenging this. I'm really challenging this. I really think that uh, we are focused now on efficiency much more than in blossoming personality. And then I would say that the teacher, you know, when I was a teacher in the secondary school, uh, I, I was a teacher for seven years. And I, w I was teaching French literature and I was teaching philosophy. And I pushed my, my students to just uh, uh, be able to write about things that are to connect the, the schools with the society. Does it, it doesn't mean to undermine the knowledge, you know. It's, I, I'm quite demanding with knowledge. I want it to be at the highest level. But to connect knowledge with behavior within your society. So for example, I try to write uh, three books with my students about for example, the marginalized people in the society, the eldest people in the society, to connect them with the reality. And then also uh, with this diversity that we are experiencing in our society. So I would, I would like the teacher to be, at the same time, someone who is going along, which is the very uh, meaning of educating, is going along to, to, to direct, to, to, to lead the, the students. But also we have to, to really ask ourselves about the curriculum, what we are teaching, and how we are teaching this, how we are connecting to, to the, the, the students. So all the discussion that we have in you know, the new pedagogy, that the students should be the center, and I think that we have to be, to be cautious. I'm quite critical of this, you know, the statements, the, the, the students should be the, the, the center. I think that uh, we have to balance something which is the center, yes, but not, uh, do not 
uh, avoid talking about authority because at the end of the day you know I was I was dealing with young students for years and one of the main problems that they have was they didn't know where was the authority and the limits so I you know I remember so you know one of my teachers by the way you know in, in Arabic we have a when you have a someone a scholars who is just teaching you as a sheikh and I was always saying wherever I was going one of my shuyukh one of my sheikh is a young guy he, he passed away he was 18 he was one of my students and in fact I understood something out of him he you know I wrote a text on him and what I believe you will find the text uh, he was his name was Thierry he, he, and I wrote a series of texts on what they taught me my students and he taught me something which was important is give me some limits because your limits are expression of your love you know just when you know that someone is telling you don't come after six o'clock I want you at home at six o'clock it's a limit but it's love I care for you and I think that education has to do with this because I have some young boys who are lost and ended up in drugs and the point was that nobody was telling them come at six Derek, another word uh, in this sort of area of education that's um, not available in English is, is the German word Bildung, and uh, also Greek idea of pedia, which was the, the idea that education wasn't just learning stuff, but was a, a freeing the human being for its own human being. And, and that idea of a kind of cultural acquisition which frees you up to be the human being, I think, is also absolutely fundamental to ed education and is rather, again, invisible in any of the English words we have. Yes, but I, I think what you are saying is so important, is that all the process of educating means making the, the, the pupil and the student autonomous. Right. So it's free as well, and I think that this is so important as well, that we have to reconcile ourselves with this. Okay, there's uh, quite a few hands up. Uh, okay, yeah, one there and then one in front. Uh. There. My name is Mohammed. Um, I mean, you talked about the concept of universal values, um, Western values, Islamic values. Is it something that is intrinsically linked with human beings um, to dominate, um, to force their opinions on others? Is it something that we're born with? Because at the moment, um, if you look at the discussion between the West and the Middle East, you know there is a contradiction uh, within the discussion, and if the the Islamic world was leading the world in terms of economically, militarily, would they behave the same way? Um, or is this just a, is this a human uh, factor that we're talking about? Thank you. Yes, uh, I'm not sure that it's a value, but it's a, a universal uh, uh, relationship to power. It's yes. That in fact, you know, this is something which is starting from, from within, it's the intimate reality that every single human being is struggling with uh, tensions between, you know, uh, violence, domination, selfishness, arrogance, and then on the other side, we like beauty, generosity, we and we are struggling. And 
every single civilization is exactly struggling with the same, is that there is the, the, the very open, enlightened side, but in the name of God, we went to kill people, and in the name of reason, we did the same. It's exactly the same. This is human beings. So I was recently with Christopher Hitchens in New York, and he, the, the question was, is Islamic a religion of peace? And uh, his answer, of course, was no. Uh, uh, there is no religions of peace. They are all... And I was saying, you know, all the religions are dealing with human beings, so they are dealing with violence. And we have, and, and, and what you are saying, domination is part of us. So the question is, and this is why I'm, I'm touching this in the chapter on emotion and spirituality, and education, by the way, it's exactly this, is to master our temptation towards violence and domination to just respect. You are not naturally respectful or democratic. You are not. When you were young, it's this is my toy. Don't touch it. This is mine. We are like this. So it's out of education that you give, that you understand, that you share. So I think that, uh, once again, and there is one thing which is important. No civilization and religion has the monopoly because we are all dealing with human beings. And there is a second teaching which is coming from history. This is why we need memory. Uh, the victims of yesterday could be the oppressors of today and tomorrow. So don't idealize the victims. There are two things that are important for me. Never to idealize the victim, because sometimes the victims could be very bad when they have power, and it happened in history. And the second thing is uh, about this, not to idealize the concept of justice. Justice is a condition for peace, but it's not the end, it's not the final word. We need justice, but sometimes we need something which is beyond that. Which is, okay, this is my right, but I go beyond that in a way I'm dealing with, with the people. Which is all the discussion that we had, for example, in South Africa. When I was in South Africa, this, all this discussion about reconciliation. If you are obsessed with justice, you are not going to reconcile the people. If they don't go beyond the, 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 the rational vision about this is my right, and go beyond, okay, I can't forgive, I can't forget, I can't go beyond that. You will never get it. Never. So we need something else. So it's, this is once again education. Yeah, that, that, that chapter, yeah. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on what you were saying about um, lies and truth. It seems to suggest that there is no intrinsic difference between lie and truth. Um, and in relation to that, about um, agnosticism, when you, you said that, that you could simply turn to a, an agnostic, and I'm not talking about a kind of Hitchens or Dawkins um, radical atheist who doesn't accept anybody else's truth, but a genuine agnostic, and say, well, your doubt is your truth. But it seems to me that perhaps there is a difference between uh, lies and truth, and that, again, coming back to, to your met metaphor of the mountain, that there's one pinnacle, um, that perhaps there is more than one summit, um, and it's not simply about roots, but actually in the end, you are looking at different things. And so maybe agnosticism is, is more about accepting that whilst there are other roots, there may also be other summits. If you can yes, elaborate I, on that. that. That's a fair point. I think it's, it's important and it's, it's going to help me to elaborate on what I was saying. I was not saying it's the same. Of course, you know, if you are coming from a religious tradition, you believe in, in, in one truth and you think that this is it. Uh, it's for you the final truth if you are Christian, Jew, uh, uh, um, 
Muslim, Buddhist, or whatever, you, you, you believe in this. And even if you are atheist, is that there is no God is, is your truth. Now, what I was saying is that for someone who is saying, I don't, uh, uh, um, I don't bother about the fact, uh, I, 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 I don't want to know if there is a truth or not, or even saying the opposite, and this is why I was using the, 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 the example of Nietzsche, saying, lie. It's something that we can do, we can go for this. It's your morality is constructed onto something which is a power struggle. In, in fact, the morality is the power of the weak people. They use morality to get power on the, the artists. Okay? This is the will of power is subjugated by this, oh, you are great, but you are bad. <laughs> you get the point? So in this, you say, okay, that's your philosophy. But for you, what you are constructing is your truth. So you are always connected. But I'm not putting it at the same level. This is why it's not relativism. It's really, okay, to understand the logic. This is what I call in the book intellectual empathy. Intellectual empathy is, I, I, I try to enter, to, to, I put myself in your shoes to try how, to understand how you construct. And sometimes I don't understand. Sometimes it's not understandable for me. From where I am, by definition, I cannot get it. But I understand there is a system here. There is something that you are building. It's not at the same, uh, it has not the same meaning. It has not the same uh, consequence. I may think it's wrong. And it, sometimes you should say this, that I think is wrong, that you think is wrong. And we dis this is the, the beginning of the dialogue. But uh, uh, this is what I was trying to say about lies and, and, and uh, truth. The second point that is very important. Uh, is what you are saying about the fact that we might think that and the agnostic is not the radical atheism that we have now with some of the, the, the intellectuals around the world that are uh, uh, you know, advocating this. And we might say that some people, you know, agnostics, are saying, for me, I don't know even if there is a mountain. So this is why in the chapter I say there are two images that are quite interesting. One is the mountain for the people who think that there is something which is an answer, and it could be the desert. There are many routes, but we don't know where they go. And you can be lost. But there is something which is quite important. There is a desert. There is a landscape. There is an infinite. There is something which is a quest for something. So the point at the end of the day, which is the, the ultimate truth of everything, is the quest in itself, which is exactly the question of Kant that you summarize in what is man. It's yearning, looking for something. So once again, I'm not putting all the answers at the same level, and I'm not saying, and I'm not confusing the intellect, uh, intellectual attitude between you know radical atheists and agnostic. And I think the, but my point that I wanted to make is that sometimes I meet with people, and they are quite sure that because they don't have an answer, they are more open-minded than you. <laughs> and this is a closed-minded attitude. This is what I'm trying. It's, uh, you know, the problem that I have is not with the people who are believing or not believing. This is, this is your answer. It, it, it's, it's for you to decide. The most important problem that I have is really with the dogmatic minds. And the dogmatic minds are not exclusive minds. They are binary minds, and which is exactly what we have when, when we become too emotional. Is I'm right, so there is only one conclusion. You are wrong. You get that? And I think that this is in all the philosophies, all the traditions, you will find these dogmatic minds. It's not exclusively religious and it's not exclusively philosophical. Thank you. Okay, we've got. Uh, uh, can we have one down here? We've, we've been spending a lot of time up the back. 
hi. Um, sorry, can you elaborate more on how uh, one can move past looking for justice and and like because like a lot of people suffer from injustice their whole lives. So how can how can they just simply forgive and forget? Like how how can that be done? Like can you elaborate more on that? Thank you. Yes, yeah, about so first, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying okay. Uh, I steal your bicycle, peace and love, keep it. No. Uh, <laughs> I will first my bicycle and then we talk. Uh, <laughs> no, what I'm saying is that this obsession, uh, justice needs to be accomplished, and I think that we have to struggle for justice. But we really need to go beyond this obsession of justice is the final thing that we... we, we we, we need to struggle for our rights. But sometimes, uh, if you are obsessed with justice, you are making justice which is a, a, a kind of a court from which you are going to judge all the human beings. And you are not getting a sense of even the people who have a history and they came where they are and they did what they did, they have a history. They are coming from somewhere. So beyond the only fact that you struggle for your rights, you need to add an understanding of what is the other and in which we can go beyond that, which has to do with if we want to live together, they need, we need understanding. We need to look at, at what the people are experiencing. And you will find this in, in just, uh, it's, it's once again, uh, beyond the concept of justice is to understand the very essence of compassion and sometimes not only the compassion, compassion is not only for the victims, it's also sometimes is to understand the oppressors and, and how you can deal with this. It's also forgiveness, which is important. Tarek, are you distinguishing here uh, justice, are you identifying justice with legality here, as it were, that if, if all you're asking for is justice, do you mean all you're asking for is that uh, we have a, uh, a legal outcome not only, I think, of course, this is the first immediate uh, dimension, and it's uh, to be treated with justice equally before law, not to, and to be respected. I think that these are many, it's multidimensional. The concept of justice is not only legal. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I, I would say that... Uh, um, I say this because some people do distinguish between law and justice, and say that law is precisely about dealing with each one equally, Mm -hmm. whereas justice is always going to involve some attentiveness to the singularity of a particular person in their situation. And that, that would always go, as it were, in the law beyond mere legality. Yes, yes, that's true. But I would say that here still, uh, if you position yourself as the victims struggling for justice, uh -huh. it could be justice or legality, it could be, the, it could be exactly the same. You can just encompasses and uh, encapsulate everything in this. And I think that we have to go beyond that. I think really uh, what I have seen on the ground with people, uh, by speaking about justice, sometimes you can idealize your status of victims. Okay, right. And I think that this is very dangerous. I think that we have to go beyond that. So f being a, a victim and going beyond justice put you in a situation where you have a responsibility to deal with your own rights as well. Okay, there's been somebody wanting to ask a question in the middle. No, uh, yes, the guy with the hand up there. Yeah, look at the mic. 
Speak into it, the microphone, please. It's, it's on. My question's in three parts. Uh, I could Still start. Still not hearing you down here. You're not? That's oh. Yes, that's no, okay. Um, it's in three parts. Uh, I'll begin. <laughs> Is that right? Okay. I never spoke we, so we'll loud. We'll get the first part. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first part. At the end of Tang Dynasty in China, one scholar official comes across a mountain and he looks across and he sees people working. But he notices one thing. There are no old people there. They're all young. Isn't that the same situation modern Chinese and we are facing? The concept of history and the concept of teaching of history in England is, is absolutely abysmal. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, absolutely abysmal. Uh, it's non-existent. Uh, how many of us knows of other Tudor writers? <laughs> I've been looking into uh, certain French scholars and the more they seem to be coming up, how they define the French language, blah, blah, blah. There are equal counterparts on the English side as well, but we don't seem to know of it. But lastly, may maybe not the last. Oh, you no, let you me make it the last. Okay, okay. <laughs> you, you said uh, with the question of Gandhi and untouchables, no, I'm not, uh, going off the subject. The point that Gandhi might have made is, okay, pick another person. But then the concept of state of India and the concept of nation states after Second World War is non-existent. We have, you know, superpowers. Okay. So minus Gandhi, well, we have to juggle that as well. We have what? We have to juggle that. Minus Gandhi, there is no nation from the Second World War, not just for India. That, okay. that is precedent which was not there. No, just very quickly about the first. I'm not sure that we can say that there is no teaching of a history in Britain and, and uh, you might be disappointed, but I, I would tell you something. Whatever, sorry? No, no, but that's fine. But I can tell you something which is, this is a universal problematic and questions that we have everywhere. It's really how do we teach history? No let me answer. So I, you can say this, but I, I wouldn't say that. You know, I have been involved in, in, in many uh, societies where I've been teaching, and I can tell you there is something which has to do with uh, memories problematic. Even in Africa, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, citing in the book, quoting in the book what uh, uh, Ampateba is saying, say, in our societies, when an old man dies, it's a library which is disappearing. But if you go to Africa today, it's less than a library. And we have a problem today with the, the roots, and that's true. I think that the, the educational process, you know, all this question between tradition and modernity, the way we are putting it is very dangerous. It's as if, you know, modernity is all about, you know, uh, uh, living with our time. It's, and I think that modernity is a tradition in itself, and traditions are never static. They are always moving, and we need to get this sense. And this is why I like the book of, you know, 100 Years of, of Solitude and, and, and of uh, Gabriel uh, uh, Garcia Marquez, who is just talking about this coming back of things and these memories and this giving you a, 
by the way, it's something which is so important. So I would say that you can be critical towards the British system, and we all have to be critical with the, the systems that we have today, because the way we deal with memory and history is problematic. And if we don't get a sense of common history, we will end up with conflicting memories. If we don't integrate into this sense. And the last thing that you were saying, this was not my point with Gandhi. My point with Gandhi is, for the struggle, the struggle for justice, is Ahmed Ka was saying, in order to be open to this society and to spread the non-violent uh, uh, understanding, you are using words that in fact are shifting the very essence of being what it means to be oppressed. The untouchables are oppressed, and this is what we have to say. So then don't change the words. And you may agree or not, I think that what is interesting here is to name has to do with power. The way you, you, you use the terminology and the terminology that we are using are always has, has always to do with power. So what was interesting is for Gandhi to say the way they are the children of God is giving them a power which is far beyond the way they are being treated. And Ahmed Kawa said that's not true. So this is a discussion which is quite interesting. Good. Okay, now to save the steward having to run all around the room, there was one just there. You're standing next to him almost. He seems to be not wanting to ask this question. Yeah. Yes, it was you. <laughs> Thank you for uh, reminding me. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe that you have said that um, as a Muslim, um, that homosexual practice is contrary to Islamic principles. Um, now, if this is correct, that you that this is your opinion, uh, are you then not being dogmatic, standing on the top of the mountain, looking down on the other different routes to the route that you've taken yourself? <laughs> uh, no. I'm looking at the mountain from the valley. Just to tell you, on my route, in my tradition, which by the way, it's the same as the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition, or even the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama a few months ago said he condemned homosexuality. So he's not sitting on the top of the mountain. He's saying, from my tradition, this is wrong. Now, am I saying that we have to cut all the roots for all the homosexuals around the world not to get to the mountain? not saying that. I'm saying something which is quite clear. There is the art tradition saying this is not right according to the tradition, but now we have to respect the people. So this is my position from the beginning, which is you may disagree with what the people are doing, but you respect who they are. The respect for human beings is the only way forward. So no, the roots are open and nobody is on the top. I'm just speaking from within a tradition, explaining that according to the Islamic tradition, as well as the other traditions, this is wrong, uh, morally speaking. But no one can deny the fact that a human being is a human being that should be respected for who he, he is or she is, whatever is your moral stand on, on, on what he's doing or she's doing. I think you cannot be more open than that. And I hope that you are, no, of course, I can be open by saying, let it be, okay? But the point is that this wouldn't be the frank discussion which is needed. Because if you go today in Africa, 
You know, recently I was in Ivory Coast. The perception they have of the West on these issues is just the West is losing the moral ground. So you may agree or not, but at least don't put the people in a situation where they are not allowed to say what they think because the only way to be a progressive mind is to say what you want them to say. It's not going to work. This is not dialogue. This is once again interactive monologue. And I would say that this is where we have to discuss about how do we deal with human beings? What is the meaning of respect even though we don't agree? And I saw so many people, they don't agree with the fact that I'm fasting or that I'm praying. They don't just understand in which way, for example, some uh, Buddhists are just dealing with their own body. They don't agree with that. But the only thing which matters here is you may disagree with what they are doing and the way they worship. Never lose the respect of who they are and the way they are. That's it. This is, I think, the starting point of Ayodhala. But I, I, I really, to tell you the truth, every time I come to discuss this in, in Europe, I'm always asked these questions. I'm repeating this and repeating this and repeating this. And at the end, no, I want to give you an impression here. It's as if, if you're not going to say that it's allowed in Islam, it means that you are not an, a progressive mind. I think it's not, it's not the way. It's not the way to, to build a dialogue. Well, I was in, in uh, the Netherlands. Many people came to me and said, you know what, this is the majority of the, the Dutch people thinks like you, but they are scared to say it. So I think that there is now a politically correct way of saying things, and I would say that my position on this is really, in order to avoid being at the top of the mountain, is just to say, believe in what you believe, be able to speak about it, but there is something which is indisputable. You have no right to disrespect the being of someone or the essence of someone because you don't agree with what he is doing or she is doing. This is the starting point for me. Okay, uh, just in a bit there. Yeah. Don't you think it's true though that um, you can choose your religion whereas you can't choose your sexuality? So thus actually saying that it's up for discussion whether it's right or not to be gay um, is actually disrespectful in itself. But this is per se a disputed uh, uh, um, reality because what we have now about homosexuality is people saying you choose, others saying you don't choose. Uh, at the end of the day, um, even when you are talking about you know, what you choose and what you don't choose, it is not going to change your moral stand on it because you can, you can be aggressive and you didn't choose to be aggressive because it's new nature and you have to educate yourself. This could be a religious response to this. At the end, don't come to the discussion about is it something which is natural or nurtured because you don't get an answer coming from religions. They would respond to this by saying, you think it's not uh, 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 chosen and some are saying it's chosen. Even by biologists, we don't have it. I would say that on this discussion, what is the scientific answer on this? I would say we are not going to agree if you come to this discussion because on this we are going to disagree and you will don't get a solution. I would say I prefer not to come to this discussion, but to come to this attitude, which is an intellectual, moral attitude towards each other. You are who you are. I respect who you are. This is your business. My business is my business. I respect you and do whatever you want. Don't ask me to accept all what you are doing. Let just ask me to respect who you are. I think this is the starting point. But if we come to enter to th into this discussion, we are lost 
because all the theories are conflicting theories, even between biologists, even between people who are dealing with this. Some are saying, no, it's coming from a social construct, it's coming from pressure, it's coming from what is happening in the family. So this is what I, you may disagree with this, but you cannot just have a final decision on that. So if you don't have a final decision, if you go towards this discussion, you are going to fight for something which is not the right way of putting it. And I, I would say, let the people be able to tell you, I disagree with it, but I respect who you are. Let them be able to say this without being perceived as backward, bad man, bad woman, just religious, too religious, or fundamentalist. It's not going to work, because this is also a, a, a kind of a repression in the discourse when the people cannot express what they think. So let the people be uh, able to say and, and to open a discussion on this dimension. Now, uh, my business is your business because I have to tell you all that we've run out of time. And um, it leaves us in a rather conventional way to thank Tariq Ramadan for a very interesting talk. Thank you very much.